0: We open up to John chapter 7 again, and this will be the uh, final part of this look into Jesus' teaching at the temple. We've looked at this over the last uh, two Sundays in John, and this will complete this section. We'll move into a different period in Jesus' ministry after this. But if you remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Most of his ministry has taken place outside of Jerusalem. It's been in Galilee and the outer regions. But he has come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three required feasts for all the Jews to attend. He went to the feast after it had begun to avoid the public celebration of his arrival, as he knew would take place, as will take place in a few months down the road when he comes back to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and we experience a triumphal entry. At some point in the middle of this feast, he begins to teach at the temple. There isn't a recording of what he actually taught. We've seen some bits and pieces out of the application that Jesus has made when he was challenged by the religious religious leadership over his audacity to heal a crippled man on the Sabbath when they, in fact, are happy to circumcise individuals on that same Sabbath. So Jesus was successful in refuting their antagonism against him over this healing of this crippled man. And as he has been teaching, there is division within the crowd. We looked at that last week, and we'll see that as a continuation in our passage today. And Sometimes when you look at a passage of Scripture over several weeks like we have, you forget that this is all happening in the same time frame. This isn't a week later. This is right now. There's still division within the crowd about who He is. Some believe that He is sent from God and they are believing in Him. They are placing their faith in Him. Others disagree and they want to see Him stop. They want to have Him silenced. And the Jewish authorities, the religious leadership, want to seize Him, meaning they want to capture Him. And as we looked at in verse 32, they've actually sent officers of the temple guard to go and to get Jesus and to bring Him back so that he can give an answer to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the whole council, and give an account for his teaching and for the claims that he is making about himself. And so now we come into this passage. It's just a couple of days later, as we're going to see in our very first verse. We're going to look at verses 37 through 52. And the Gospel of John reads, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So we're going to look at our passage in two major sections here. And as this is a continuation of the last two messages, we'll begin with number five here. It is the invitation that Jesus makes on this, the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, if you remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God's faithfulness to them during the wilderness wanderings. In a desolate place where there is no food, God provided manna. And in a desolate, arid place where there is no water, God provided water for them. And so one of the important parts of the Feast of Tabernacles was this daily water ritual. So there was a water pot that was filled from the Pool of Siloam every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this was not prescribed in the Old Testament. It was added a couple of hundred years before Jesus' time. But it was a very important part of the ceremony. So as they would get this pot of water, they would ceremonially bring it into the city, into the temple, and then they would march, the priests would march around the temple. They would pour the water out with the daily drink offering in the appropriate Pieces that were on the altar. And this was the way that they celebrated the reminder of God's provision in the wilderness wandering. But it also was a foreshadowing of the blessings that, the, that they would expect to come in the messianic age. So it looked backwards at God's faithfulness in the wilderness wanderings. And it looked forward into the blessings that they would receive once the Messiah came. So this water ritual is very, very important to the Feast of Tabernacles. And so as we think about what the Jewish person had in mind, we look at what Isaiah 55 one says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. So there is this idea, there is this expectation of the Messianic age for this water to be abundant. So each morning they would draw the water, carry it into this very formal procession into the temple. They would blast the trumpet's horn brought from the ram's horn, the shofar, to mark this joyous occasion. And the worshippers would recite from Isaiah chapter 12, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. This is what the people were reciting as this procession was coming into the temple and as the water was being poured out. So at the temple, the priests would march around it. And while they were marching around it, the temple choir would sing the Hallelujah Psalms, which is Psalm 113 through 118. That's a lot of psalms that they're singing, right? It's a very significant event. So when they completed Psalm 18, it was then that the water was poured out and the ceremony was completed. It symbolized the Lord's provision of water and the outpouring of the Spirit that they expected to come in the last days. Now, on the seventh day, which is the last official day of the feast, the finale of the water ritual, the priest would march around the temple seven times, and then they would pour the water out. On the eighth day of the feast, which was the unofficial last day of the feast, there was no water ceremony. It was a time for the people to reflect on God's provision It was a time to consider the blessings of the Messianic age, and it was set aside as a time of prayer. So on the last day, the great day of the feast, whether that be the seventh day or the last day, Jesus stands in the midst of the temple and cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Have you ever wondered why that verse is there? Why it's there in that place, attached to that feast? This is exactly why. It's looking back at God's faithfulness and it's looking forward to what they expected in the Messianic age. And what Jesus says is that I am the one who fulfills the promise of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is me that Isaiah has spoken of. It is me that you're looking forward to to come in the Messianic age. I am here now and if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. So in this imitation, there are three key words or three key phrases that we look at. The first one is this, if anyone is thirsty. This calling out that Jesus is making, it's an idea of a recognized need. Now, medical experts say that when you recognize your thirst... For most people, they're already in the early stages of dehydration. When you know you're thirsty and you've just got to get something to drink, there's a pretty good chance that you're already in the early stages of dehydration. Symptoms include a dry mouth, extreme thirst, fatigue, dizziness, and confusion. By this time, when you experience these symptoms, the body is in significant trouble. So spiritually... When one longs for purpose and significance and forgiveness and love and joy and hope and peace... He is longing for salvation. There is a great thirst in our world. Not everybody understands what it is they're thirsty for, but they know they're thirsty for something. What we believe as born-again believers in Jesus Christ is that people long for a meaningful connection with the God of this universe. And just as the body craves water when it's in a mode of dehydration, we God's creatures crave a meaningful connection with Him because He is, after all, Our Creator. We were created by Him and for Him. And our lives find meaning and significance and purpose and joy and peace and love when we come to Him in a relationship. So those who are longing, those who are craving something for their soul, is the person that Jesus is talking to. They recognize that they need something other than what their life experiences. They need an encounter with the Savior of this world. He's speaking specifically to the Jews in the crowd who are tired and dissatisfied with this man-made, legalistic, traditional religion that is based upon the rabbinic traditions of Jesus' day. The invitation that Jesus extends on the last and the great day of the feast is the same invitation that is being made today to those that recognize that there's something more to this life than they actually experience. Jesus says, Come to Me, those that are thirsty, and drink. You know, people in our world stuff their lives with all kinds of things in order to try to find some kind of significance or purpose people will work themselves to death to be able to create for themselves a name so that at some point people can look back and say I remember that individual that was a great person we think about the inventors the people that have changed the world that we live in by the things that they have created They've made a light bulb. They've made electricity. They've made airwaves, radio waves that we can talk to and communicate. You can pick up a phone and you can call somebody on the other side of the world. People that have created these things have made a name for themselves. But I can guarantee you, apart from a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ, their lives lack the significance that they desperately need. And when they stand before the God that has made them, and give an account for their life, they can't claim this great creation. They can't claim this great legacy that they've left. All they can say is, I have trusted in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, and that's what my life is about. This is who Jesus is crying out to today through the pages of Scripture, through the testimonies that we would give if you are thirsty for meaning and significance in your life. Come to Jesus and drink from Him, and you will be satisfied second thing that we see in this phrase here is, "...let Him come to Me." You who are thirsty, come to Me. It signifies an action of the will. It means that you are moving towards Christ. Just being thirsty and just acknowledging your thirst is not enough. It doesn't satisfy or quench your thirst. You can be sitting there in the heat of the day and say, boy, I sure am thirsty. And there's a pot of water over there. I guess I'm just going to let that pot of water sit over there because I'm not going to go get it. You see, to come to Him is an action of the will. We have to choose, we have to decide that we're going to move towards this One who makes this invitation to us. We must go to the source. It isn't enough to recognize the thirst and it isn't enough to just acknowledge what our soul needs. We must do something about it. That old adage, you can lead a, water, a horse to water, but you can't. Make Him drink it. So we have to acknowledge our need. We have to move towards Him. And then we have to drink. To drink here is analogous to receiving Him by faith. To drink of Jesus means that you come to faith in Him. And this is exactly what we'll see in the next verse. When Jesus says, believe in Me. When we come to Him by faith, that is how we are able to then satisfy Our thirst. Not all who recognize it actually will drink from it. Even though this thirst can dominate our lives and can affect the satisfaction of the life that we live, not all who thirst will actually drink from the source. This is shown to us in the pages of Scripture in Mark chapter 5. Sorry, I didn't put that up there. Mark chapter 10, excuse me in the life of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler, uh, as Jesus he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice the posture here. The rich young ruler has knelt before Jesus, meaning I see you as a superior individual. I recognize that you are a good teacher or the good teacher. We don't know how much exposure he had to Jesus. But he recognizes an inferior position before him. And so in verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things up from my youth. I want to pause right here. In spite of the morality that this individual had lived, probably a Jew who knew the Old Testament commandments, knew the kind of life he was expected to live, this man sensed that he still lacked something in his life. He knew about Jesus. He knew about the Old Testament. He knew about the commandments. He had kept them. But there was something more that he needed to do in his life, he felt, to secure eternal life. He wanted to be sure that when he died, he would be with God forever and forever. He sought clarity and confirmation. He had religion but the religion wasn't satisfying him and what he needed was something more. He needed a relationship. And so Jesus in verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Now some people read this absolutely literally and say that Jesus was expecting this man to sell absolutely everything he had and and take on a life of destitution and be dependent upon the generosity of others. That's not what Jesus was saying. That's not the expectation at all. But the rich young ruler valued his possessions more than he did the eternal life that he sought. He had a recognition of who Jesus was. He had an acknowledgement of His need for eternal life, but He was unwilling to drink. He was not willing to deny Himself, to turn from His love of wealth, and then to follow Jesus. Drinking of Jesus means coming to Him in faith. It isn't feeling bad about your sin. It isn't just an intellectual acknowledgement of who He is. It isn't getting your ticket to heaven punched so you know that you know that you're going to go to heaven. It is giving your life to Christ and it is living for Him. It's accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, two sides of the same coin. Now, most of you remember the old 45s. You could go down to the record store and you could buy a 45 and on side one was the hit. And you played it till it just didn't want to play anymore. On the other side was a lesser known song. Probably not as good. Probably not ever going to make it as a hit. But it was put there because the record company wanted you to listen to it. And they had to put something on the other side. And that's the way a lot of Christians want to try to treat salvation. Is I want Him as my Savior. But the other side, the Lordship thing, eh, that's kind of arbitrary, isn't it? I don't have to really live for Him the way I do. Because He loves me and He's going to forgive me. And He's a gracious God and He understands, right? Two sides of the same coin. The Lord and Savior. So Jesus extends the invitation. If you're searching for spiritual truth, come to me in faith and receive me as Lord and Savior. And you will be satisfied. The result of this is life. Verse 38. Remember verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38. He who believes in me, the drinking... As the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, this quote by Jesus is not a direct quote from any singular Old Testament verse, but it reflects the truth in Old Testament passages about the Messianic age. We looked at a couple of these in Isaiah, and there are many, many others. And so this is the same thing that he said to the woman at the well in Samaria. When you drink of me, you will possess... Rivers of living water. So the result of coming and drinking is that we will experience abundant spiritual life. What God provided physically in the wilderness wanderings, he will provide spiritually when we come to him in the messianic age. And what he provides for us spiritually in the messianic age that we live in, by the way, is the Holy Spirit himself. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, not only will our spiritual thirst be quenched, but we will have within us the source to quench spiritual thirst in the lives of other people. The truth of the Gospel message delivered in the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability to quench the soul thirst of people around us who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. We are not the source. We can't provide the life, but we can provide them with the source by sharing with them who Jesus is and what He has done and to help quench the thirst of their soul that only Jesus can actually satisfy. We are not to selfishly receive this gift of salvation and bottle it up and keep it to ourselves. We are to share with others as it has been shared with us. John explains this in verse 39. John's explanation in verse 39, But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this living water, as John explains here, is the Holy Spirit of God who now lives in us, and who now empowers us, who strengthens us, who fills us with God's presence and flows out of us with the potential to impact the lives of other people. This spring of living water, this river of living water, identifies the result of our being filled with the Spirit, of having the Spirit control us through the witness of our lifestyle and through the witness of our words. It is Christ seeing other people in us. It's a great thing for someone to say, you know, that's a very respectable individual. That's a very kind and caring individual. I really admire the kind of life that person lives. That's all fine and dandy, but it's a much different thing for someone to say, that is a godly man. That is a woman who really loves the Lord. You see, when you can have that said about you, it means that people don't just see a general goodness, a general admirable trait, but they see godliness in your life. And that's what it should mean for us to have a river of living water flow out of us in such a way that others can see Christ in us. So Jesus identifies himself as the living water, able to quench the spiritual thirst of man. And when one receives that living water, he then has the capacity to share the source of living water with others, what a tremendous privilege that we have given to us by God in this gift of salvation. Now, Jesus has extended this imitation we 're going to notice now, in the second part is the responses there 's four different responses that we 're going to see here in the crowd. The first one is the committed. The response of the committed is found in verse forty. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, "This certainly is." The prophet. So the the committed saw that Jesus fulfilled what they expected to be fulfilled in the prophet. Now the prophet could be one of two things depending upon the individual Jew. It could be the prophet which is synonymous with the Christ. Or it could be the prophet who was the forerunner of the Christ. We see this in Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses spoke and said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. As we looked at just a few weeks ago in the, in the feeding of the five thousand in john six fourteen after he had miraculously provided this meal, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, "This is truly the prophet who has come into the world." so there is this idea that he is either the Messiah or that he is the prophet sent by God, so there is this group that is committed so there 's some ambivalence about what the prophet really means, but there 's others who said without any doubt, this is the Christ. Verse 41, the first part of that. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Leaving no doubt about what they thought, that this is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, that God has sent as promised from the beginning of the covenant. But notice this very quickly. Being convinced in our minds, having this intellectual agreement that Jesus is who He says He is, is not the same thing as being convinced... In our hearts, intellectual belief does not indicate salvation because there are many, many people in this world who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they believe that He is the Savior. But it does not mean that they have made a commitment of their lives to receive Him, to be saved by Him, and to live their lives for Him. There are many people who have an acknowledgement of a deity. They want to tip their hat to God. They want to thank the man upstairs. They want to say something about the person of Jesus. But don't be fooled. That does not mean that they have actually committed their lives to Him. When we come to Him, we come by faith in the truth of who He is, And we come to commit our lives in living them for Him. We must connect the two intentionally and therefore live our lives accordingly. So you have the committed. Secondly, we have the cynical. The cynical are in the latter parts of verse 41 and 42. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is He? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So their assumption is correct. The Messiah is going to be a descendant of David and the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The point of their contention is that Jesus was from Galilee, that He was raised in Nazareth and because He was raised in Nazareth, they simply assume that that's where He is born. Well, they didn't have all the facts, did they? Matthew 1, in his genealogy, very clearly connects Jesus back to the line of David. And in Luke 2, it's clearly identifying that Jesus was born... And Bethlehem. So they overlooked the facts about Jesus. Perhaps they didn't know. Perhaps they weren't really that thirsty. Perhaps they were satisfied with their own self-righteousness. And perhaps their idea of a Savior didn't quite fit with the person that they saw Jesus to be and where He was from and the kinds of things that He was saying. We don't get to create our own God. We don't get to create the structure that fits the God that we want to be. God is who He is. He is the one who has created this universe. And He has been represented to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't want Jesus, then you don't want the Father. If you don't come to Christ, then you're not going to get to the Father. So for whatever reason, they had a problem with the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth, and that's being where He was raised, And they overlooked the fact that he was actually from the lineage of David and was actually born in Bethlehem. So we see this division amongst the people, those that were committed and those that were cynical. This division that Jesus has created in the crowd is the same division that exists today. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 53, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Is that why Jesus came? No, he'll give peace to the individual believer, but he didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members of one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be they will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. What's the division? It isn't because they're in laws. It isn't because they act like outlaws. The division is the fact that somebody has made a commitment of their life to Jesus Christ and they're living for Him and the other family members who are not saved don't like it. So Jesus didn't come to create peace in this world in the sense that there'd be no more strife, there'd be no more wars, there'd be no more hatred. He came to give peace to the individual who would come to Him and drink from Him. But the family... God's created way of duplicating the Gospel will experience division over the reality of the Gospel being affirmed and lived out in the person of Jesus Christ. He divides believers from unbelievers. It's reflected in separating light from darkness, sheep from goats, children of God from children of the devil. Jesus is going to bring division and we just need to be aware of that. When you live for Christ in the public arena, you're going to create a problem. People don't like the light that's going to come from the light that you're living as one who has made a commitment to Christ. You will create division. That's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Christ that you serve. So this division is so intense. We read here in verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, some in the crowd, but no one laid hands on him. Some of those that didn't believe, in in John's terminology, he's not referring to the religious leadership, typically that would be the Jews, but those within the crowd wanted to seize him because they were also convinced, like the religious leadership, that Jesus was a blasphemer and a heretic and needed to be stopped. So some that didn't believe wanted to seize him. The third response we see here is the confused. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? So they've been on this mission for a couple of days now to find Jesus, to grab a hold of him, and to bring him back before the council so Jesus can give an account of his statements that he's making. Now remember, the officers here are the temple police. They are Levites. They are faithful Jews. They are rigorously trained. They're well informed of the Old Testament. They're not just muscle They're not just big bodyguard types like you would expect from the Romans, but these are Levites. These are people who are trained in the truth of the Old Testament. So when they come back, they come back without Jesus, and the Pharisees are outraged and they want to know why, and they say simply this, we were amazed at what we were hearing. We've never heard anything like this before. We have been rigorously trained. You have been our teachers and we've never heard any of you speak the way this man has spoken. They are caught between the power of grace and the message of hatred being spewed by the religious leadership. Verse 46, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Notice they didn't say, well, you know, it was a big crowd and there were a lot of people around and we were afraid that a riot might break out. That's not what they said. They simply said, we have never heard anybody talk the way this man talks. It's a contrast between the words of Jesus and the man-made traditional legalistic religion of the Jews. The Jews, excuse the religious leaders were absolutely furious at this. Verses 47 and 48. The Pharisees answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in Him, has he? Now remembering that these are Levites and they have been trained in the law, there's no expectation on, on the part of the religious leadership that the Levites of all people are going to be led astray because after all, none of us, none of the Pharisees have believed in Him. And if we don't believe in Him, then you can't either. You're either one of us or you're not. You don't have the privilege of believing in this blasphemer or in this heretic because we ourselves don't believe in Him and we have not given you permission to believe in Him. If we haven't, then why should you? Many who reject Christ will try to impose the same position on those who have accepted Christ. I remember years and years ago when I first became a Christian, I was, I was blessed to have led one of my brothers to the Lord, and he worked in the construction environment. When they heard about his profession of faith, they began to ridicule him, calling him born again. There goes born again. There he goes. Hey, here comes born again. Those who have rejected Christ will seek to intimidate those who have accepted Christ in an effort to squash and to quiet them and to keep them from talking about this significant experience in their life. So here the officers appear to be quite thirsty spiritually. They're hearing words they've never heard before, possibly have never seen Jesus' ministry before because they are, after all, temple guards and a lot of His ministry has taken place outside of the region of Judea. So here they are thirsty, and they are caught between accepting Christ and suffering the persecution and the rejection by their peers. The religious leadership makes an emphatic statement, but this crowd, verse 49, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. This crowd out here that is believing in Jesus They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the law. They're just a bunch of common idiots. And they are going to be accursed. That word accursed is a strong word within the Jewish way of living. That word accursed means to be banned. For a Jew to be accursed means that they have been excommunicated from the community of Jews. They have been cast out and set aside. And that's the last thing any Jew wants to experience. The assertion that the religious leadership makes here is that anyone who believes in Christ doesn't know the law and they therefore should be and will be cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. It was the most serious punishment you could hand down on a Jewish person apart from actually taking their lives. The Pharisees had such a high view of themselves as the educated elite and a very condescending view of everybody else, and they were considered to be simply commoners. The temple police were one step above commoners, and they were clearly several steps below the Pharisees. So the Pharisees take this confusion, and they use fear and intimidation to keep them from seeking the truth any further. The last response we see here is the curious Verses 50 and 51. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So this is a reminder that comes from Deuteronomy. You can't condemn someone unless you have actually had a trial. You can't condemn somebody until you've sat down and had this dialogue with them. So this Nicodemus is the same one that came to him In John chapter 3, he's not going to be intimidated by his colleagues. He's searching for the truth and he hears in Jesus' words and he sees in Jesus' ministry enough to indicate that this shouldn't be callously dismissed. We ought to hear what this man has to say. But the other religious leaders have already made up their minds and they want to intimidate their colleague. Verse 52, they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So, this is intended to be an insult to Nicodemus. It would be like saying you're from the wrong side of the tracks. Anybody that has come from Galilee doesn't come from the right location. You are a second class citizen. That's an insult, intended to be an insult to Nicodemus. And they also make this incorrect statement that there has been no prophet that has arisen out of Galilee. Jonah very clearly came from the region of Galilee. It is thought that Nahum and possibly Hosea have also come from the region of Galilee. So they're incorrect in their assertion, and they're very condescending in the statement that they're making, is that you aren't also from Galilee? Are you indicating that Nicodemus was now an inferior part of this council, remembering that Jesus called him the teacher of the Jews back in John chapter 3. We'll find out later, much later, in John chapter 19, that Nicodemus is openly and freely associating himself with the disciples of Christ. He was willing to give up all the privileges of being a Pharisee because in comparison to the satisfaction of what it was his soul really thirsted for, being a Pharisee just didn't matter. It wasn't worth it. It was a much greater privilege to be a follower of Christ. So we have this very simple invitation. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. And if you do that, you will have within you a spring of living water that will give you the capacity to share this life-giving truth to others. And there's these four responses. The committed, the cynical, or the unbelievers. There are the confused who are searching and still trying to figure it out. You and I would agree that we are all committed, right? We're the committed. We consider ourselves to be the people of God. But how do we live for this one that we're committed to? We can be committed and live like an unbeliever. That's a paradox that doesn't make a lot of sense. We can be committed and be confused about what it means to walk with Him and to give our lives to Him and to serve Him fully. Pray with me. Father, we, um, we thank you for the great gift of salvation. We thank you that you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for this amazing gift of grace. You've given to us that which satisfies our thirsty souls and what you've given us is yourself. God, would you teach us how to treasure this gift more than we do today? Would you give us a greater sensitivity to the ones around us who are thirsty for something meaningful in their life? You give to us divine appointments every day. And when we aren't connected to you in the way that we should, we miss them. Or we choose to ignore them. But we are ministers of the gospel, whether we get paid to be a minister or not. Would you help us, empower us, burden our hearts to share your truth, to live for you in such a way that others would recognize you in us? Father, thank you for giving us songs that we can sing that celebrate the great God that you are, songs that speak of the value of worshiping you. I pray that you would be blessed by our worship today. Would you help us to remember these songs that we sing as we give ourselves to you anew. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, please?